Any views or opinions expressed on KUR are not necessarily those of Kutztown University, Kutztown University Student Government, Kutztown University Student Services Incorporated, KUR staff and management or other affiliated organizations. This week on KUR True Crime, we'll explore a puzzling disappearance, the web of mysteries surrounding it, and an ominous Vermont town that may be much more than it appears. Paula Jean Weldon was a sophomore at Bennington College in the winter of 1946. The college, located near the Glastonbury Mountains in Vermont, is still known today for its beauty. Paula was viewed as very ordinary, with good grades, a job at the college cafeteria, and a major in art. On December 1st, 1946, Paula told her roommate that she needed a break from studying. She left for a walk, which she told her roommate would be on the Glastonbury Mountains Long Trail. Stretching more than 270 miles and all the way to the Canadian border, the trail ran through the forests of Bennington. Paula seemingly took nothing with her, not even money. She even left behind an uncashed check that her parents had given her weeks before. Paula left campus around 2.30 p.m., not dressed for the cold weather, in an outfit that would earn her the title as the real-life Red Riding Hood, a red parka with a fur hood jeans, white sneakers, and a gold wristwatch. She was picked up while hitchhiking near campus around 2.45. She told the man who drove her that she was going to hike the long trail off Route 9, and he dropped her off about three miles from the entrance to the trail. Multiple other hikers reported seeing Paula on the trail. One group warned her that there was a snowstorm coming and the clothes she was wearing wouldn't be enough. Paula assured them that she was okay and continued on, heading north on the trail. Another man passed Paula around 4 p.m. She reportedly asked him how far the trail went, and he told her it stretched all the way to Canada. This was the last reported sighting of Paula. At one point, an elderly couple who were walking less than 100 yards behind her saw her make a turn at a corner and hit them. But when the couple reached the same corner, the girl was nowhere to be found. She was wearing a red sweater and was last seen by an elderly couple hiking the trail. 
To this day, people believe it's bad luck to wear red and hike Glastonbury Mountain. The sun set around 5 o'clock, and snow that would accumulate to 3 inches began a few hours after that. Paula's roommate assumed she was studying late at the library when she didn't return that night. When she hadn't returned the next morning, and her roommate realized she never even came back from her walk, she contacted school officials. A small search party was organized, but only for the campus at first. The college had a requirement for students to sign out if they were planning to be off campus past 11 p.m. Upon their return, they were required to check in with university security. Paula hadn't signed out or checked back in. When Paula didn't attend any of her classes the following Monday, her family was notified that she was missing. Her father, William Archibald Weldon, immediately rushed from Stamford, Connecticut to Bennington to lead a search. The local sheriff was called in and word spread. Theories ranging from amnesia to murder spread throughout the community. Students and professors were given the opportunity to assist in the search as the college shut down for multiple days. Even though the National Guard joined the search, nothing was ever found. None of Paula's belongings, no traces of where she had gone, and no remains. The young woman had seemingly disappeared into thin air. At the time, there was no statewide police force in Vermont. The only attempts that could be made, therefore, while led by the local sheriff, were done by self-organized teams. These groups often crossed paths, researching areas that had already been searched, retracing their steps constantly. There was a total lack of organization. As a result, time and energy was wasted. In desperation, the Connecticut State Police were brought in to help. Later in the investigation, officials from Massachusetts and New York would also step in. When a man claimed that he had actually been the last one to see Paula, his changing story about where he was on December 1st quickly made him a prime suspect. The man had supposedly bragged to multiple friends that he had killed Paula and hid her body, although he would later state that the whole thing was a joke. 
due to lack of evidence, he was never formally accused or arrested. A waitress in Massachusetts claimed to have served Paula the day after the disappearance. In response to this claim, Mr. Weldon rushed to follow the lead, disappearing for almost two days, not telling anyone where he was until he returned to Bennington. This incident raised some suspicion and caused some to believe Mr. Weldon should be a suspect in the case, especially considering an alleged fight he had with Paula that caused her to miss their family Thanksgiving. He theorized that Paula was upset about a hometown boyfriend who should be found and questioned. Nonetheless, there was no evidence to support this theory. All of this, along with claims by a train conductor of seeing her in South Carolina and countless other reported sightings, led to nothing. The initial theory was that Paula had gotten lost in the mountains and died of exposure to the elements. When no signs of her were found, however, other theories began to form. A strange rumor would subsequently circulate the town some years later, stating that she had fallen in love with something in the mountains and had become a recluse up there. Investigators checked for possible reasons Paula would have left. She never had a steady boyfriend that she would have run away with. She was a hard-working student, but she had recently been debating changing her major from art to music or botany. Rumors circulated that Paula was struggling with depression before she disappeared, but her family and friends would deny anything of the sort. They all argued that she would never leave so suddenly. Furthermore, with no money in her pocket and all of her belongings and an uncashed check left behind, it's difficult to believe that she could have simply left to start a new life. Many believe that Paula's disappearance could have been caused by foul play. Although there's little evidence of it, there are theories that she could have been murdered and buried in the woods. Others have suggested that Paula had an accident near the trail. However, many have noted that Paula was very physically active and experienced in hiking and camping. Beyond this, no real evidence was ever found in the case. Even though the search continued and the case remains open more than 60 years later, Paula has never been found. The lack of a practical explanation 
has forced people to look for answers in more outlandish theories, including alien abduction and supernatural causes. But one theory has dominated all others, a theory that leads many to accuse Bennington of having a paranormal history, one that strings together an entire web of five mysterious disappearances. Is it possible that Paula Jean Weldon was part of a bigger phenomenon? Programming on KUR provided in part by the students of Kutztown University Radio. Checking campus headlines, Kutztown University celebrated Unity Day Thursday, September 1st morning on Schaefer Lawn. Dr. Kenneth Hawkinson, university president, along with university leaders, representatives from the student body, the community, and other campus officials, gave remarks celebrating KU's diversity and sense of belonging to the Golden Bear community. The Dalai Lama said if we wish to ensure everyone's peace and happiness, we need to cultivate a healthy respect for the diversity of our peoples and cultures, founded on understanding of this fundamental sameness of all human beings. Indeed, as we begin a new year as a community, we must renew our commitment to diversity and our common values. Only by seeking understanding of each other and rejecting all forms of racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, bigotry, brutality, violence, and discrimination, can we find happiness and peace. That was Kutztown University President Dr. Kenneth Hawkinson talking about cultivating a healthy respect for diversity. The event took place during the university's annual Community Link Fair, which brought together local businesses, nonprofits, and places of worship with the campus community. KU's diversity rate among its student body continues to increase. The diversity rate at KU has grown from 11% in 2009 to 23% as of fall 2021, a 4% increase from 2019. We check news hourly on KUR. After the search for Paula Jean Weldon quickly went cold in the winter of 1947, varying explanations formed. Speculation has only grown in the decades since. One theory, raised by author and occult researcher Joseph Citro, gives a paranormal explanation for the disappearance by labeling the Vermont area as the Bennington Triangle. Now, the Bennington Triangle may not enjoy as much media coverage and popularity as the Bermuda Triangle, but the mysteries surrounding this three-pointed region in southwestern Vermont are just as compelling, if not more verifiable. The area covered by the Bennington Triangle is not completely defined, but it is thought to include Glastonbury Mountain along with several towns such as Bennington, Shaftesbury, Woodford, and Somerset. In the past, these towns were considered to be thriving because of their logging business and industrial operations. However, around the late 19th century progress in these towns began to slow down and with the decrease in population some of them ended up becoming unincorporated communities as a result they are today referred to as well ghost towns in the uh, in the early days in the 18th century 19th century it would have been really rugged the whole economy was based on trees and you would have had to cut trees to uh, for heat and to cook with the first village was was Fayville in the northwest corner of the town, that's where there was the, the first settlement. There was a school there, there were uh, little houses, and uh, 
Eventually, there was a big sawmill there. Then uh, later in the 1870s, um, a logging railroad was built from Bennington up to, up to South Glastonbury. Once the trees were all cut off, somebody had the bright idea of turning the logging railroad into a trolley for tourists. So after that one summer of a summer resort up in South Glastonbury, the, the trees had, had all been cut off, so there was erosion. There was a big flood in uh, November of that year, and uh, it wiped out the, uh, the railroad line and all, of, all the bridges. Well, it, it just rotted back into the, the woods. And no one tried to make it go up there again? No. The Glastonbury Mountains, where Paula disappeared, are included in an area of southwestern Vermont where five people disappeared between 1945 and 1950. The reason for these disappearances? Many have blamed a special energy inhabiting the Glastonbury wilderness, a gate leading to other dimensions, or possibly a magnetic force that draws aliens who not only took Paula, but also the others. Citro suggested the existence of an unknown but dangerous anomaly in the Glastonbury Mountains, which he referred to as the man-eating stone of Glastonbury Mountain. According to Citro, the Native Americans knew of its existence but avoided encountering the large rock entity at all costs. The rock is supposedly large enough for a human being to step on, and when someone steps on the rock, the heavy stone becomes more malleable and ultimately swallows a human being whole. So Citro entertained the likelihood that the five people who disappeared between 1945 and 1950 could have accidentally stepped on one of these beast-like stones and ended up being devoured by these unusual creatures. And what could be the most far-out theory? They had a myth of a rock monster. Now I'm trying to figure out what a rock monster would look like, but they say it's, it's, it's big enough where a person could stand on it, but once they stand on this rock monster, um, the rock liquefies and the person gets like slurped up inside and disappears. The full extent of what's contained in Bennington differs between people. Folklore describes the area as cursed ground, especially according to Native Americans who would allegedly only venture into the area to bury their dead. These indigenous inhabitants of North America lived in the area of the Bennington Triangle all the way back to 8,500 BCE. And according to Sajwa, its population has always regarded it as a cursed site filled with darkness that must be avoided at all costs. Though we have no means to scientifically determine if the Bennington Triangle is indeed cursed, the local legends of wild beasts and strange disappearances, which are being told and retold by those who live in Glastonbury and its neighboring towns, seem to support this age-old claim. Supposed sightings have been reported of a creature resembling Bigfoot. These claims are supposedly backed by the 1943 disappearance of a man named Carol Herrick, who went missing during a hunting trip in the area. His body was found three days later, surrounded by gigantic footprints. He had reportedly been squeezed to death. And right next to him was his gun that hadn't been used, wasn't fired. And then when they did an autopsy, they discovered that Carl had been squeezed to death by something. Yet he didn't use his gun to defend himself. 
rumors of man-eating rocks, ghosts, and aliens, but most of all, of a mountain range that seemed to swallow people up, spread amongst those searching for an explanation. The five victims of the mysterious wilderness have come to be known as the Long Trail Disappearances. The first disappearance took place in November of 1945, when 74-year-old outdoorsman and hunting guide Mitty Rivers wandered off. He was leading a team of hunters around the area when he got too far ahead of the group. But he was leading a group of hikers into the woods, and they're on the trail, and he's like, hey, I'm gonna go up to this one spot here and kind of scout things out, and then just kind of follow up behind me and meet me there. Well, this, the part that he was scouting out was called Hell Hollow Brook. His failure to return to camp led to an eight-day-long search, but the only discovery in possible relation was a single rifle cartridge. No other evidence has ever been found to explain the disappearance. The woods were searched thoroughly and uh, no, no sign was ever found of him. I mean, the presumption was that he was, uh, somebody shot him, thought he was a deer, you know, during, during hunting season, and uh, somehow the, the body was, uh, was well concealed. Paula Jean Weldon became the second victim. Exactly three years after her, on December 1st, 1949, 68-year-old James Tedford went missing. The veteran and resident of the Bennington Soldiers' Home turned out to be the most seemingly paranormal disappearance of the group. The oddest part of the incident, Tedford disappeared from a moving bus. He was returning home from a visit to St. Albans and was one of the 14 passengers remaining on the bus when it left the last stop before Bennington. But when the bus arrived in Bennington, Tedford was gone while his belongings remained. His baggage was still in the luggage rack. A bus schedule sat open on his empty seat, but none of the other passengers had seen him get off the bus. Although an investigation took place, there wasn't much information to go on. Nobody had seen anything out of the ordinary. Others reported that his behavior seemed perfectly normal. If witness accounts were correct, he would have disappeared while the bus was on Route 7, moving through the Bennington Triangle. Skeptics are quick to point out that no one ever claimed he was anywhere near Glastonbury Mountain. That's true, but legends have a way of expanding beyond traditional borders. 
even if he had jumped from the bus, as some suspect, he would have been doing so in the midst of a massive snowstorm. Even more curious, this wasn't the first odd incident involving Tedford. He had left to fight in World War II, leaving behind a seemingly happy and content life with his wife, Pearl. But when he returned, Pearl was nowhere to be found. The house was in perfect order, and a meal that Pearl had been preparing was still left out. Witnesses reported seeing her that day on her way to the store in town, saying that she seemed completely normal and very happy. So when Pearl never returned, some began to theorize that she had run away. But why would she do so if she was as happy as reported, and why leave in the middle of making a meal? This left James Tedford broken and was the reason for his frequent visits to family in St. Albans, the last of which would be the last time he was ever seen. On October 12, 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson became the fourth in the series of disappearances. His mother left him sitting in her pickup truck while she went to tend to the family's livestock. When she returned only minutes later, the young boy was gone. Almost immediately, after searching the small surrounding area, she reported him missing to police. Hundreds of people gathered to assist in the search. Police dogs picked up a scent and were able to follow it toward Glastonbury Mountain, but lost it at a crossroad. This was thought to suggest abduction by vehicle. According to local legend, the bloodhounds managed to track Paul's scent all the way to a local highway, which turned out to be near the location where Paula Whedon supposedly disappeared four years earlier. Although he was wearing a large, bright red coat, he was never seen again. Apparently, bloodhounds tracked him to the same stretch of road where Paula Weldon had vanished some four years prior. It's either he vanished right where he stood, or someone picked him up alongside the road and who knows what happened. His case, still unsolved to this day. The boy's father mentioned Paul's wishes over the previous days to visit the mountains. The mountain area was searched extensively to no avail. As more time passed, some began to theorize that Paul Jepson had been killed by his parents. But the boy's father insisted while talking to the media that Paul had talked of the mountains, that he had, quote, talked of nothing else for days, end quote, leading up to the disappearance. Just over two weeks later, 
on October 28, 1950. Frida Langer disappeared while camping with family near Glastonbury Mountain. She was an experienced hiker and camper and was very familiar with the area. The 53-year-old had left with a cousin to go on a hike, but slipped and fell into a stream only a few hundred yards from camp. She asked her cousin to wait while she returned to change her clothes. After waiting a while, the cousin returned to camp to check on her, only to learn that Frida hadn't returned at all. Somehow, she had disappeared in broad daylight in the span of a few hundred yards. Again, hundreds gathered to search over the following weeks. Nothing was ever found, and the search was called off. Months later, in May of 1951, her body was found in a location that had previously been searched very carefully. Because of the state of the body, a cause of death couldn't be determined. Langer's was the only body to ever be found. All of the cases remain open. However, while Frida Langer is considered the last of the Long Trail disappearances, it is not the end of our story. While it's not officially grouped with the cases listed, there was another disappearance. Although it took place a year after the final official incident and across state borders, some believe the disappearance of Connie Smith could also be linked to the mysterious Bennington Triangle. Here at KUR, we like to think we're doing something that not many of those corporate-owned radio stations out there do any longer, providing our listeners with local content provided by local KU students and staff, interspersed with some of the finest and national content available. From our transitional format called Radio for Pets to all the great student specialty shows which range from rock to rhythm and blues to country to folk to world music to indie music to jazz and much more, right down to various educational talk programs and live sports on the weekend. KUR is the perfect package. Check out our on-air schedule by going to our website at www.kutztown.edu slash KUR. That's www.kutztown.edu slash KUR. And if you ever have any comments about our programming, something you'd like or don't like, don't hesitate to email us at KUR at kutztown.edu. That's KUR at kutztown.edu. Thanks for listening to your campus and community radio station right here at Kutztown. 
Kutztown, the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. Programming on KUR provided in part by the students of Kutztown University Radio. Checking campus headlines, Kutztown University has named Dr. Jeffrey Werrung as Associate Dean of the College of Business. Werrung comes to KU after 10 years at Black Hills State University and began at KU on August 3rd. Werrung served at Black Hills State University in Spearfish, South Dakota since 2012. In his recent role as Special Assistant to the Provost, Werrung was responsible for the coordination of academic programs for a new location at the Ellsworth Air Force Base, the transition of support for the Hospitality and Business Center, and oversaw curriculum development for the Healthcare Administration Program. Quote, I have traveled the country and regardless of where I lived, Pennsylvania has always been my home, Werrung said. Two of my great-grandmothers attended Kutztown back when it was a teacher's college, and the university has always played such an important role in the region. This is an especially exciting time for the College of Business at KU. Putting students first sometimes requires flipping old industry norms on their head. The new stackable MBA model is designed to address workable needs in data analytics, leadership strategic decision-making, preparing students for jobs that did not exist a decade ago. This is the type of bold innovation the region needs and will set KU apart as a leader in the area. Kutztown University Radio welcomes Dr. Jeffrey Rubberin. We check news hourly on KUR. Connie Smith was 10 years old and living in Wyoming in 1952. Part of her summer vacation was spent in Salisbury, Connecticut at Camp Sloan. Her mother traveled to visit her on July 14th, and during the visit, Connie expressed how much she loved the camp. After begging to stay longer and being denied, Connie promised to see her mother when she picked her up on July 23rd. Early on July 16th, Connie got into an altercation with a group of other girls at the camp. One of them punched her, giving her a bloody nose and upsetting Connie so much that she told her friends she was going to skip breakfast. She indicated that she was going to drop off the ice pack she had been given. Instead, she left the ice pack in the tent and walked away from camp, heading down Indian Mountain Road. Witnesses would later claim to have seen Connie picking flowers alongside the road. Several people reported being asked by Connie how to get to Lakeville, a town about half a mile from the camp. Some asked her why she was headed in that direction, and Connie told them she was homesick and needed a break from camp. Other witnesses reported seeing her later in the day trying to hitchhike on U.S. Route 44. Other than the clothes she was wearing, Connie had taken nothing with her. She was never seen again. 
Smith's father searched desperately for answers in multiple locations. He consulted psychics, all of whom were unable to give any relevant information. Because of the girl's love of animals, especially horses, he even traveled to meet Lady Wonder, a supposedly magical horse capable of solving mysteries by spelling words on a typewriter. This venture was also unsuccessful. He would go on national TV, begging viewers to send in any information they had. In the end, nobody knew anything. Because of the relatively short distance between Salisbury, Connecticut and Bennington, Vermont, some have linked the case of Connie Smith to the long trail disappearances. Many suspects have been linked to Connie's disappearance, but none have been charged. Only one sticks out as the most plausible. William Henry Redmond, a former carnival worker, was charged in 1988 for the 1951 killing of a young Pennsylvania girl, only a year before Connie Smith's disappearance. In 1955, an anonymous caller reported to police that he worked for a carnival in Lakeville and had more information about Connie Smith's disappearance. After being arrested decades later, Redmond supposedly told another inmate that he had killed four people during his life. He passed a polygraph test regarding the Connie Smith case and was determined unfit to stand trial for the other murder. He would die in jail in 1992. Connie Smith's disappearance and the possible involvement of William Henry Redmond has been heavily linked to the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon. If it's possible that Redmond was involved in the Weldon case, could he have been involved in the rest of the string of disappearances? The answer to that question is uncertain. While other suspects have been proposed for the Connie Smith case over the years, no theories have been able to survive criticism. Seemingly, the only supported theories involve William Henry Redmond or a more mysterious, possibly paranormal explanation. Now, there are many possible explanations behind the strange and mystifying disappearances of these people. Perhaps those who have gone missing weren't really missing at all. Maybe they ran off somewhere and never looked back. Another extreme but not completely unlikely scenario is that a serial killer may have been running rampant in Glassbury during those years, and he or she was the one responsible for the disappearances. But out of all the weird explanations presented by people to explain what had happened all those years ago, perhaps the most outrageous of them is the one proposed by Joseph Citro. You know what? what 
why, why take the risk? You're going hiking in an area where you know like people mysteriously disappeared, their bodies were never found. Maybe go somewhere else to go hiking. These, these disappearances, these unusual circumstances happen in and around this mountain and the legend grows. Yeah, you know what I think? I mean, if you get out in this territory, this is a huge territory. I think the surprising thing is that, that more people haven't disappeared, really. It could be uh, really terrifying to be out there and, and, get, and get lost and not know where you are. So with all of this uncertainty surrounding the long trail disappearances, what could the outcome be? The disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon turned out to be extremely historically relevant. The lack of a Vermont police force is blamed for most of the difficulty in her case. Weldon's father made sure to emphasize that blame even further, refusing to leave without scolding the state for its lack of care and effort. This storm of criticism led to the establishment of the Vermont State Police. Furthermore, Shirley Jackson's 1951 novel Hangzaman was based on Weldon's disappearance and is widely considered to be one of the most terrifying pieces of horror ever written. Yet, the publicity surrounding Paula Jean Weldon greatly surpasses that of any of the other long trail disappearances. While attention was given to the cases at the time of their individual occurrences, not much has been investigated since. And even though Paula Jean Weldon did receive more attention, the outcome clearly wasn't much better than the others. So not much has happened since the 1950s at the Bennington Triangle, but recently there have been some strange occurrences going on. Uh, back in 2019, local police found a homicide victim inside the Bennington Triangle. Uh, that case, by the way, is still unsolved, and her nickname was Red. Then in 2021, they found another victim who died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound inside the Bennington Triangle, and he was inside a Red truck. All of the victims outside of the last two went missing or disappeared in a very short time frame in the afternoon. It was always in the afternoon and they all went missing in a specific time frame of the year, the last few months of the year, I believe October, November, and December. Now, as far as the theories go as to why this is happening, some say it's because the area is prone to some really strange weather and wind. Uh, they say that the wind makes the foliage and the trees grow in strange shapes and in strange directions. Like for instance, a tree instead of growing up may grow sideways or very crooked. And they say that can disorient hikers and hunters and get them lost. Uh, another theory is since the area used to be an old mining town and lumber town, there's a lot of wells and mines that are unmarked and people, if they go off the trail, they may fall down one of those and of course get swallowed up by the earth, never to be seen again. Perhaps more information will one day arise. Until then, speculation about the mysterious Bennington Triangle will continue.
KUR True Crime is a student-produced show that researches multiple sources and is a production of Kutztown University Radio. Any theories presented are only theories and have not been proven as 100% factual. You can follow KUR True Crime on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can find all of our previous episodes on Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio. You can also follow Kutztown University Radio on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Join us next time for another installment of KUR True Crime.